Here's a question for you this morning. You ready? Have you ever made a decision to do something, thinking it made complete sense and sounded extremely reasonable, only to find out later you made a bad decision because you didn't have all the facts? Ever happened to you? Let me put it this way. Have you ever passed judgment on someone not realizing you didn't know all the details? Or when you found them out later, you realize your judgment was off? It happens quite a bit because we just are not, uh, we're not uh, invited into all the facts along the way. Uh, check out this picture up on the screen. This is an interesting picture where uh, the guy's looking through his, uh, his uh, um, whatever that is, TV screen there, and he sees on his TV screen something that creates in him uh, a judgment call. He sees on the one hand, uh, on the left-hand side, you'll see that it looks like there's a knife in a guy's hand, and, and that's the, uh, the, the guy, the aggressor. And then on the right-hand side, the other guy holding up his hand with his mouth open, screaming because he doesn't want to get stabbed. That's what it looks like. But if you look closer at the picture, you'll see that there's some things that don't make sense. Namely, the picture on the left, there's no face on that rounded edge. While on the right-hand side, you could see the fingers and the face uh, very clearly. Now, if you back up from that picture, from that little snippet, that small little piece that you see right there, and you see the bigger picture, you might understand something that you didn't know before, namely that the victim is the one that is being the aggressor, and the one you thought was the victimizer is actually the one who is the victim. Uh, this is from, a, uh, this is from a, um, a study in narcissism, actually, from psychology, but it's an interesting picture, two pictures that illustrate to us sometimes we make judgment calls. And we're thinking that we have all of the information. And in the end, we realize that judgment call was not correct because we didn't have the pertinent information that we needed to have to make the right call. Sometimes even in a situation where we're doing counseling, one of the people that I talk to sometimes will try and prove their point to the point where they think that they're the victim, when in actuality, the more I dig, the more I realize that person actually might be the victimizer. And they may even believe it to themselves. To their credit, they genuinely might believe they're the victim. But as you pull in more information and you make the picture clearer, you begin hopefully to understand who is in the right and who is in the wrong. And a lot of times, both are typically in the wrong. Well, that brings us to our story today, actually, that we're going to be looking at in the life of Abraham. But before we get there, let me just ask you this question. In the culture in which we live, the secular culture in which we live, sometimes culture will make a judgment call on God that is actually not correct. Now, this happens actually quite a bit uh, in this generation. As I was younger, growing older, I could see this be, uh, happening more and more and more. When I was younger, it seemed like uh, people had more respect for God. He's right. He's just in what he does. But as I'm getting older and generations are changing, the questions are changing. And in secular culture, there seems to be more of an attitude that we might be more right and God might be more wrong. In secular culture, the, this attitude of narcissism has streamed to the surface and God sometimes is portrayed as the victimizer in our culture. He is the oppressor. He is the bigot. He is the misogynist. He is the commuter of mad genocide. He is the one that sits on the sidelines and watches our pain. 
And the questions we ask in order to come to those conclusions are, these are questions that we're very normally, we're very familiar with. Where was God when this happened? Or why would a loving God do this? Or where was God, uh, or, or God, if you love me, you would have done this. Or God of love would never do whatever. And we fill in the blank. And if you look at these questions, we realize that these are deceptively organized to put God on trial. We're actually the cross examiners in a trial. We are the lawyers proving God wrong. Let me give you an alternate reality. What if culture was the oppressor? What if secular culture was the bigot, the misogynist, the one who creates the incubator that infects us with pain? What if culture was the one that was the aggressor? And we have been taught to call it, or to put it at the feet of God. Abraham is about to experience this very scenario in real time. He believes he has enough facts to call God on what he's doing and to make sure that God knows he's wrong. In fact, he uses the facts that he has in order to prove God wrong. He puts God on trial. It's a very unique passage of Scripture and one that stands out in my mind as I think about Abraham's life. I can't think of another passage in Scripture like this one where somebody went through this. But Abraham is about to find out that God is a lot more informed than Abraham and deals with a much larger picture than Abraham was dealing with. So take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 18. This is where we're going to be looking this morning, or your uh, iPads, or your, uh, your electronic gizmos and gadgets. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. Here's how the Bible begins this part of Abraham's life, as he is about to find out he may not have all of the facts. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. He sat in the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and three men were standing in front of him. Now, Abraham is likely having a siesta at this point. It's the hottest time of the day. He's done his work in the morning. Now he's relaxing and enjoying, he's enjoying the day. And so he's having a siesta. I think that's a very biblical uh, way to handle your days, by the way. Work in the morning, siesta in the afternoon. The wording here seems to indicate that these three men suddenly appeared in front of him almost supernaturally. He looks up and sees them standing. And when he saw them, the Bible continues, he ran from the tent door to meet them. And he bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, in the ancient Near East, this is typical. Three men come by, they kind of wander around the front of your door. You offer them hospitality. Hospitality is highly regarded in this culture. In our culture, we kind of highly regard hospitality as well. If you want to really get to know somebody, you, what, do you want, what do you do usually? If you go out for coffee, but if you really want to get to know them, you go out for dinner or something, right? Or you invite them over for dinner. Well, in this day, hospitality was that times a hundred and so Abraham knows his responsibility is to treat these guys with honor and respect. But they seem to have more pressing reasons for their visit. Next door to where Abraham is in Sodom and Gomorrah, there are great atrocities happening. And God has a plan for correcting things there. He is going to destroy the entire city. So we as the reader are, are called to look into the back door of God's deliberation process if you go down uh, to verse 17, the Lord said to the angels, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? 
seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through him. The setting is laid, and the scene terms ominous. Although nothing is said about Sodom's fate, something bad is going to happen to Sodom. God almost invites us and Abraham into the back door of his deliberation process. And the reader is invited to hear the thoughts of God, this divine deliberation. This is important. It's almost crucial because we are invited into the deliberation process because we are always asked to answer this one very difficult question, especially in secularized culture, and that is this. Is God just? Abraham must learn to answer this in his own day, and he's going to wrestle with this. And Genesis wants you to know that not all knowledge is beneficial to you when you have to answer that question. Some realities are just too heavy for us. I take it back to the Garden of Eden. You remember the Garden of Eden? There's a tree put there, and God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat from how many trees of the garden, church? All, any, all of them. Any tree of the garden except for how many? One, one tree, and you cannot eat from that tree. Can you imagine how many trees God planted in that garden? Can you imagine how many fruits and how many different flavors were available to them? And, and it's all perfect because God had just created it. I mean, it is, it is flawless. And they could have from any tree of the garden, but this one they were not allowed to eat from. And God said, if you eat from it, you will die. Now, to this point, this is only theory to them. They had no idea what die was. They only knew that if they ate from that one tree, a bad thing would happen. God knew the extent of the story. True or false? God knew what would happen if they ate from the tree. True or or false? And God knew exactly what would be required of every human being if they did the deed. True or false? Every person after Adam and Eve would die spiritually and physically. That one act of rebellion and disobedience would send all of humanity into a disdained uh, state where they would become not friends of God, but enemies of God. Every attitude from that point forward would be not how can I please God, but how can I tick God off by putting myself in his place rather than leaving him where he deserves to be. The reason Adam and Eve took from the tree is because they thought they knew better than God. They thought they had the bigger picture. They thought they knew what what was and what, what wasn't. And Satan lured them in just enough to make the wrong decision. Have you ever watched a scary movie that you just wish you hadn't have ever watched? Yeah, you ever watched a, you ever watched a movie somebody said you shouldn't watch that movie it's just it's totally disturbing. Like for instance, when I was 17, I watched Pet Cemetery. It was the worst movie I've ever I mean, it pulled me in and I was 17 and I was unable to to deal with some of the 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 pictures that I was seeing. And granted, it was made in the 80s, so all the, all of you you guys that are, you know, are younger going, that's the dumbest movie I've ever seen. Okay, all right. It was an older movie, right? You had clay animation where we have you know, it's, uh, 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 graphics from computers. To, we didn't even have computers back then. We were using typewriters, all right? So, but in that day, it was fully disturbing. I saw images I wish I'd never seen, and, and I, I wish I'd never seen that movie. Now, here's the point. 
Now that I've told you about Pet Cemetery, some of you are thinking, I really should see that movie and see what Craig's talking about. Ah, you see the point? That's how it happens. We're told something, and, and, and God constantly tells us, don't do this because bad things will happen. He sees a bigger picture. And the more that we contemplate it, the more that we revel it in our minds, the more that we question God, and the more we put God on trial, the more we think to ourselves, maybe this isn't so bad. What am I missing? And that's what made them eat of the tree in rebellion. If this is how we approach what God says, it will always mess us up. Deuteronomy 29.29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Too many times the lure of sin is just enough to draw us in. We think, what am I missing? Why shouldn't I try it once? Everybody's doing it. What could be so bad about blank? A lot of people do it. And that is happening on a large scale today. That's why marijuana is soon to be legal, by the way. I mean, there's so many different things that come along that people are going, now you should try it, you, should, you, know, you don't know what you're missing, blah, 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 blah. And the pull of us into those scenarios to just find out what we're missing is enough to create another problem in our lives that we're going to have to deal with later. True or false? Yeah. Nobody becomes an alcoholic that doesn't take one drink. And this whole time, God warns us. He warns us against these things because he knows what those things will do to us. He knows our weaknesses better than we know ourselves. And so in his word, he says, stay away from this. This will kill you. Don't do this. Stay away from that. Here, do do these things. This will help. This will bring life. This will bring you a, a, a pride to your family. This will bring joy to your soul. But we have a tendency to think that we have the facts to the whole picture, and we make bad decisions all the time. But without all the facts, God's decision to Abraham appeared to be as vile and unloving as possible. And Jesus himself, this is the thing, in this chapter, Jesus himself deliberates with the angels. And he, and he says, because the three visitors, we're going to talk about this more next week, three visitors, I believe one was Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ, and the other two were angels. Why? Because the two go down to Sodom and pull Lot out of there, and one wouldn't set foot in the place. One stays with Abraham. And Abraham refers to that one as Lord, as the higher of the all three. We'll talk more about that later. Let's get back to the story. Abraham is going to struggle to find out why God is going to do this devastating act to Sodom. And he's going to struggle with calling God a victimizer. Here we go in verse 20. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come up to me. And if not, I will know. Notice the catalyst that pulls God to the edge. Their sin is so noticeable, it can no longer be unseen. If you read the story of Nineveh, or the, the story of Nineveh, same, same deal, Jonah chapter 1, the, the sin of Nineveh has come up against God. If you read the story of Noah and the ark, it's the same deal. The sin of the world has become so great, God can no, no longer overlook it. If you read about the sin of Babel, it's the same thing. God says, let us go down and find out what kind of rebellion is taking place at at, uh, at, at uh, Babel. And for us, there's a day coming when sin will c accumulate to the point where God will not be able to look at it over it any longer. And God will have to judge it. 
And we have a tendency not to talk about that because it looks like God is the victimizer. When in reality, maybe he's going to be doing something we don't understand. Up to this point, the narrator has not revealed what God is planning on doing. But Abraham doesn't know what's coming either. Although he knows enough of the reputation of Sodom, (laughs) that he seems to discourage God from looking any closer into what's happening there. Listen to this, verse 22. So the men turned from there and went down towards Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? There you have it. He knows there's wicked people down there. He says, God, if you were a God of justice, a God of mercy, and a God of love, you wouldn't wipe out an entire city. There's all kinds of righteous people in Sodom. He sees a part of the picture. He's making a judgment call, just like us, with limited knowledge. We try and tell God what's right and what's not, and what's not right. We try and correct his point of view. He couldn't believe God would wipe out a whole city. But what is God saying in this sentence? Or what is Abraham really saying? Number one, he's saying that his moral compass is better than God's. Number two, he's saying that God is impulsive. Yahweh, you've got to think before you act here. Let's, let's not get the, the horse in front of the buggy, or the buggy in front of... How does that go? I don't drive a buggy or horse, but you know the illustration. Let's not, let's not go crazy here. There's lots of good people down there. Come on. Would God actually right, wipe out all the righteous with the wicked without even thinking about it? And number three, God doesn't know how this is going to make him look. People will think badly about God. Yahweh, people... You've you got to understand that, that there are consequences to this kind of a decision. What are people going to say about you? Think of 2018, reading the story. How are they going to think about you in that church, in Village Church East? Now, at that point, God could simply say to Adam, dude, are you perfectly intentional? Are you perfectly righteous? Do you have all knowledge? I mean, he could have easily put him in his place. You have no idea the stories I'm hearing come out of Sodom. You have no idea the blood that is being spilt in this town. You have no idea the atrocities and the way the people are treating each other in this town. You have no idea. But he doesn't do that. God doesn't lecture Abraham. Instead, he just lets Abraham go. And here's how it goes, verse 24. Abraham continues, suppose there's 50 righteous in the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare 50 who are righteous in there? Now, keep in mind, he's not saying the number 50. What he's saying is, what if half? Let's say half are righteous. A generalization. Let's say, like, there's at least got to be like half of the city that is righteous. I I, I agree with you. Sodom is not known as a great place. People get murdered there. Bad things happen. It's known for its its sexual deviation, all of that stuff. I get it. But let's say, like, like, half of the city has to be good. So he lectures God on what somebody with his character would do. Look in verse 25. Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing. (laughs) Abraham is telling God how God should behave. Get this. To put the righteous to dead with the wicked, so that the righteous fare like the wicked? Far be that from you, God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now let me ask you, is this a man seeking answers from God or seeking to put God on trial? He's not asking for answers from God. He wants God to behave in a way that he thinks God should behave. God, or Abraham's struggle here is simply this. Can I trust that what God does is right? 
Now, when we get to the point where our questions begin to be our idols, our faith will begin to dissolve. Let me say that one more time because it's borderline brilliant. When we get to the place where our questions become our idols, our faith will begin to dissolve. It's okay to question God, but if your questions put God on trial, you are idolizing your questions rather than surrendering to God. Look in verse 26. The Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the... How many, church? I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham wins. Chalk one up for the good guys. Right? God's wrong. Abraham's right. Abraham answered, and then he realizes what he's done. Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Okay, God, we, we struck a deal, but, you know, you're still God. And Abraham realizes how presumptuous he's been. But then reality hits. And Abraham starts thinking, sweet, we're on a roll. I saved Sodom. So then he sits there and he starts thinking to himself, all right, there's got to be some righteous down there. We got Lot. All right, Lot's good. And, um, well, Lot's got to have friends, right? And, like, he's got a family. He's got a couple daughters down there that are probably married. So, you know, there's some people there. One, two, three, four. Uh, uh, all right, hang on. Let's lower the bar just a little. Verse 28. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45. No more rough estimates here. Now we're down to nitty-gritty. These are numbers. He's saying, all right, let's take the 50% out of the equation. Let's say I just find 45 people there. Like, like there's got to be 45, right? Hmm. Lot. Lot's wife. She's a little crazy. Uh, Lot's daughters. <sighs> All right, let's lower it just, just the hair. Verse 29, again, he spoke to me. He said, look, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, God said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. So he goes again, Lot, his family, and uh, then he said, oh, Lord, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose there are 30 to be found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And Abraham's going, okay, good. Let's count them up. There's got to be 30. It's a big city. Let's count them up. Lot... And then he said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Listen, listen, listen. God, suppose 20, 20 people are found there. And God answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Why is God allowing this nonsense to continue? Why doesn't he just say, Abraham, I've thought long and hard about this in ways that you haven't, and you are way out of your league. You need to know there's not even 20 in here. You wanted 50. You wanted half? There's not even 20. Count them up, Abraham. God knows the truth, and the reason he allows this to happen is because God loves Abraham. And God knows Abraham is trying to intercede on behalf of an entire city that is about to be destroyed because of their wickedness. But God knows some assumptions are so deep they need to be proven wrong over time. So verse 32, he said, Abraham said, O Lord, let not the Lord be angry. I'll speak again, but this once. Suppose... Ten are found there. He answered and said, Okay, Abraham, you find ten. I won't destroy the city. Can you imagine an entire city where not ten righteous people could be found? How desperate was the situation in Sodom? 
There wasn't even ten. And Abraham knew it. Verse 33, the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, Abraham returned to his place. The point had been made. And like cultural insight, God allows Abraham to see the picture that he couldn't see before. Where Abraham was making a judgment call based on a part of a picture. And God knew what the whole picture was. Church, what if our culture is more crass, more uncaring, more rebellious, more selfish, more unforgiving, more lustful, more ungrateful than we ever think right now? If one sin is enough to separate us from God, how does an entire city full of sinful people constantly hit God's heart? The question is not, would God be righteous in destroying everything? The question is, why wouldn't God's righteous wrath, righteous judgment, be poured out on us on a regular basis? What if it is God who is way more merciful than we give him credit for? Have you ever thought about the atrocities happening in our world today? Have you ever thought about the way that we treat each other? Have you seen the way that people treat each other in other countries, much less what we do to each other here in America? If one sin is alone enough to cause the death of a righteous son of God, then how many sins have we committed, piled up against God, and yet he allows us to live? And he allows us to serve him. And he allows us to use our lives. And he allows us joy and blessings. In the end, Abraham has to admit that the problem is far greater than he, was, than he gave it credit for. And God is far more fair than he gave God credit for. There's a verse in the New Testament in 2 Peter 5, uh, 2, verse 5, that talks about this very event. I want to read it for you. It's found in 2 Peter 2, and verse 5. If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others. That's when Noah was saved on the ark with his family. When God brought a flood on the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ash, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued the righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Maybe God's love is seen best in his offer to rescue a few who will bend their knee to him. Maybe John 3.16 is more powerful than we give it credit for. For God so loved the world that is rebellious. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not, what church? Should not perish, but have eternal life. Maybe God's mercy is far greater than we give it credit for. And God's judgment being held off is far more gracious than we deserve. Maybe God's grace can be more clearly seen when we measure the depth of our own rebellion against the generosity of his blood shed on a, on a cross in order to buy us a way out. Listen, what Abraham didn't see was the way the culture in Sodom and Gomorrah was even reaching its tentacles into his own family and ruining Lot 
Slowly and slowly but surely, Lot and his family were crawling down this corrupt, rebellious, defiant hole. This would be demonstrating, by the way, next week when we talk about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and how Lot and his family refused to leave. They would not leave. Why? Because they loved the culture more than they loved God. And they wouldn't leave. Angels had to force these two angels had to force Lot out of his house because he loved this city so much. Uh, look at the words here. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He was seeing it daily. The corruption, the disgust in culture, and it was tormenting his soul, and it was dragging him down, and it was infecting and influencing his own family, and he let it go. And God knew that was what, ha- what, was what, what was happening. So what? What does this mean for us? Number one, I think we can see in this that Abraham is a man of genuine compassion. <laughs> Abraham says, God, let's save the city. Abraham wanted to see these people turn, just like, uh, just like uh, uh, Jonah. It's a, it's a reflection of Jonah's heart, where, where Jonah didn't really want to see Nineveh saved, but he had to go because God forced him to go. Well, in this case, Abraham voluntarily stepped in the gap, and he said, God, let's save this city. This is a kind of heart that should be, that should be com- commended, a kind of heart that all of us should have, that we want to see people come to know the Lord and be saved. Number two. Abraham was wrong, though he was convinced he was right. The problem of sin was greater than Abraham thought it was. And the problems that sin brings are always greater than we think that they are. What you reap, you will sow. Whatever you decide to indulge in, you will pay a price for later. Sin doesn't leave you without a check to pay. Now, if you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I am thrilled to tell you that check's been paid. Jesus died on the cross. He shed the only righteous blood that could ever be shed. He did it voluntarily so that he could pay the price for your sin and for my sin. And all those who come to Jesus, he will accept them all. But you have to come to the place where you understand your sin has offended a holy God. And if it were left as it should be, you would be destroyed because of your sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many have sinned, church? Including me? I I hear that, amen, yes. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the most amazing thing is that God in His mercy and His love provided us a cross where He hung His Son so that we could be forgiven. Look, you want to know how bad Sodom was? (laughs) Look at this. But before they lay down, this is just talking about Lot. Lot has these two visitors come down. He says to the visitors, we'll get to all this next week, by the way. But he says to the visitors, come on in, just hang out for the night. We'll talk more about it in the morning. The visitors say, Lot, get out. Get out. God's going to judge the city. And he says, we'll talk. Come on in. Just relax. We'll talk more about it in the morning. And that night, people from the town came and almost beat down his door, trying to get the visitors out because they wanted to sexually defile them. You want to know how many people were involved in that? Look at this. The Bible makes it very clear. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, how many? Both young and old, all the people down to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. You know what that means. I don't want to explain it to you, right? 
That's Sodom. You want to know why God's judgment was poured over against Sodom? Because that's the, the nature of the town. Not a few guys. Not a little band of men. Not, 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 a, uh, not, not a club with tattoos. This is men, young and old, down to the last person. And when God struck them with blindness so that they could not find the house, they crawled around still looking for the door because they wanted to defile these two men. That's Sodom. And Abraham is going to, to talk to God about not destroying because he should be able to find like half of the city wouldn't be that bad. And number three, God is always, ever, and only just, despite what we may perceive. God's judgment is just plain hard to comprehend. But if Yahweh's judgment ever appears anything other than just, we are missing vital information. We see a small picture. Don't make a judgment call on God because God sees the bigger picture. And that's the difference from those who serve God and those who are still in rebellion against Him. So what do you do? What do we do as believers who want to follow God, who want to believe that He's righteous in all that He does? Number one, go to the Word. Number two, go to the Word. Open your Bibles and search. Number one. Number two, go to the Lord in prayer. By the way, let's go back to number one yet one more time. If you are wondering why God would do this, blank, fill in the blank, why God would do this, if the election goes your way or your parents' way or somebody else's way, and you're just ticked off and saying, why would God do this? You know, that is only a bunch of people trying to get your blood up, right? Because God will do what God wants to do. It's our, it's our responsibility to allow him to do what, he, what he's doing and to fall into line and to pray for those who are in authority over us. But we can allow ourselves to get so off kilter. Go to the Word. If you're distraught, if you're worried, in this place at Village Church East, we always encourage you the same thing. Find a Bible, open it up, read it. What should you start reading? I don't know. Let it fall open and see what you find. But if you want to find a good one, I'd go to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Great places to start. But here at this church, we encourage you, read the Bible. You will grow if you read God's Word. And anyone who keeps you from reading God's Word is stunting your growth. Number two, pray. That's why we're doing fasting and prayer. We believe that when we pray, God speaks to our soul and bends us more to what he's doing around us. It helps us fall in line. Number three, we give God the benefit of the doubt every time, all the time. God does the right thing every time and all the time. So give God the benefit of the doubt. Something's happening you don't understand. Something terrible has happened to your life. You've lost a loved one, somebody's sick. Fill in the blank. Give God the benefit of the doubt every time, all the time. If you don't, you will live in a world where you're making God in your image. Bad place to be. Number four, we wait patiently for our God to be vindicated. God is right every time, all the time. And he will be vindicated in everything he does. Number five, Make an honest effort to see the real picture. Realize that you may not see everything in order to make the right call. But God does. That's why he's (laughs) all-knowing. That's the whole point. He knows all. And he makes the right call every time. I leave you with this one verse. Isaiah 30, verse 18. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. 
For the Lord is a God of justice, church. Blessed are all those who wait for him.